have to just speak up so that the microphone will pick you up. Alright, I'll do it. I'll be good. Okay. I promise. Hi everyone, I'm Dan. I'm Patrick. I'm Kiri. Rafa. And it's been a long day here, but we made it to the 1988 Academy Awards. I did. <laughs> this is If I Ran the Oscars, a podcast where we work really hard and then watch a movie. Well, no, we we look at... We look at one movie per year that the awards were on TV. We look at what it won for and three other categories chosen at random. Because we love random. And because it's weighted towards movies that won more than one award because of the selection criterion and random number generator I use, uh, we had a greater than 50% chance to hit The Last Emperor, and we did. Mm-hmm. We did. I haven't watched this film probably since about 1988. The Last Emperor was nominated for nine awards and won all nine, including Best Picture and Best Director. Now, unsurprisingly, much like other films that have won a ton of awards, it was not nominated for its acting. The entire ensemble of the movie was good, but there was no single standout performance, which I think says more about the quality of the film overall than being than having, you know, we got three good actors in this one, and then we're going to call it a day. So that's interesting. Uh, other than that, not really many Academy Awards facts this time around. I mean, there were other movies that we could have watched. We didn't. No, No, we watched this one. We watched this one. This is a very interesting movie, and I'm glad it came up, because this is the first movie authorized by the People's Republic of China to film in the Forbidden City, which is a big deal. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Well, but we have to remember, so I went to China in 1980. Yeah. And that was the beginning, beginning, beginning of the country opening up, allowing foreigners in, allowing foreign businesses to come in. I, the group that I was with, we were the first invited youth cultural exchange after the Cultural Revolution. I mean, it was so... The Cultural Revolution was in the late 60s, so that was a while. It was a while, and it was... I mean, there were not... I think there was Coca-Cola there. Hmm. I mean, Coke's everywhere. You could find Coke in, in in big cities, but at that time, so in this film, if they were, you know, it was released in 1987, so they were filming before that. This is, The government was just deciding that maybe they should allow, you know, foreign influences in and maybe they could make some money. We'd like to look at some timing facts. Mm-hmm. 1987 was when UNESCO declared it a World Heritage Site. Declared, oh, the... The Forbidden City. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is listed by UNESCO as the largest collection of preserved ancient wooden structures. It, it's so cool. Mm. Uh, UNESCO, for those who are playing at home and haven't heard of it before, mm-hmm. is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. It's the world organization that cares about history. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Uh, it's... It gets uh, 14 million visitors annually since 2012. So it's a big deal. And honestly, they did a very good job of using in this film because of the stark visual contrast between every time they would show the Forbidden City, then it would flash forward to 1950, where things were drab. Well, it, communism, it didn't yeah. need to be colorful. I. Uh, there's one kind of interesting production note that I wanted to 
they wanted to find here. Where did I see it? I don't know. If you I'm, told me, I forgot it already. I did not tell you. Oh. I saw I don't remember which... Uh, ah, it was in the historical omissions section where they talk about the part where Japan... I cut out the part where it made Japan look bad. Well, uh, you mean when it was um, when shown, it was shown in, Japan. in Japan? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the uh, producer who basically personally funded this thing, uh, the approval process for the screenplay with the Chinese government. Now, can you imagine how difficult that process might have been to get the Chinese government to okay this movie? I think it would have been difficult. He is quoted. It was less difficult than working with the studio system. Okay. They made script notes and made references to change some of the names. Then the stamp went on and the doors opened. Wow. Wow. Mm. So apparently they did a really good job up front Mm -hmm. of keeping it historically accurate. Right. Well, and not making China, current China, look terrible. No. Like, the part at the end is definitely the part where someone with an agenda against current... Well, government would have been able to make a statement, and they really didn't. It kind of just happened. Right, right, right. So, the people who be in this movie, not as many people as normally we get to know about. So, we're going to start Because off... they were Chinese actors? It's mostly Chinese actors. We don't see them as often outside of China. For instance, John Lone, who has a Chinese name, which is similar to John Lone. Mm-hmm. I played the emperor in this one, Pui. He was he was nominated for Best Actor. Oh, okay. For a Golden Globe, not for an Academy Award. Oh, okay. He did not get that. He's been in other movies. Uh, for instance, Rush Hour 2. Well. With that's... Jackie Chan. <laughs> okay. I, he's not, like, again, his, you can look at his career and his filmography and... He's got some movies on there, but it's just not... uh, Nothing outstanding. Not an outstanding uh, list that American audiences would recognize. Uh, Similarly, uh, Joan Chen, uh, Mm -hmm. which is his missus, uh, was in Twin Peaks, and that's about the best thing American audiences would recognize her from. Uh, Twin Peaks is a very popular cult-following TV show. Yep. Not me, but others... Now, we do know about Peter O'Toole. We've talked about We've him. We've talked about him. We don't need to say too much about him. But boy, is he back. And the tallest man in China. Mm. <laughs> I, he looked very old in this movie. I don't think he ages that fast. I think they yeah. did some good makeup work on him. I thought the makeup was good in this film. The makeup was pretty good in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person who I recognized as having seen him in other media before mm-hmm. is... Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa, uh, in the way his name would be in Japanese, would be Tagawa Hiroyuki. Uh, he was, in the early parts of the film, he was kind of playing the role of, uh, how, do we, how do we say this properly? Uh, the guy trying to keep status quo while Peter O'Toole was trying to break the rules. Looked oh. kind of stern. Mm-hmm. Not the old guy, but looked yeah. kind of stern. So... Yeah. He has been in some things. Uh, in the TV show Babylon 5, he played a part. He was a villain in a Batman video game. He is the voice of the main bad guy 
No, no, he's not the voice. He's the actual main bad guy in the film adaptation of the video game of Tekken. Oh my goodness. He's a guy in The Man in the High Castle, mm-hmm. which I believe is still happening. Yeah, a key role in that yeah. film. And th- where I recognized him from, evil sorcerer Sang Sung in the Mortal Kombat things. Oh my goodness. Including the 1995 film, the 2013 TV series, and then the 2019 video game. Oh my goodness. See, that's, that's where, not that's where I recognized house. him from. I don't know that. So, you know, I'm glad I got to talk about him during this podcast. I definitely <laughs> did not think I was going to get to do that. Okay, uh, you were just nerding out. I was doing that a little bit. Totally nerding out. There was uh, another guy you recognize. His name is Victor Wong. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the old caretaker guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chancellor, what's his, what, what was his role? Victor Wong. Uh, well, Chen royal, Shen. He's the but, royal advisor. Yeah. Uh, he also played a part in Big Trouble in Little China, which I think might be his biggest uh, role on this side of the world. Uh, There's other people that I looked up, but the main person I wanted to touch on is Bernardo Bertolucci, who is the director. I don't know him. He has... He does not direct blockbusters. He directs Interesting historical things. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this movie to him was very similar to another movie he made called 1900 with Robert De Niro and Gerard Depardieu in it. Gerard Depardieu is a very wonderful actor. and Burt Lancaster way down the list. Uh, th- that one was uh, premiered at Cannes in '76, but was definitely talking about fascism and communism. So you know okay. he had a he had a theme. Uh, the reason why. There's other people I want to talk about is he had an interview where he talked about the Cultural Revolution scene because he got together, at the time, young directors from China. Okay. And he asked them what it was like. Yeah. And they did not hold back. They were, apparently, he describes it, they started to act out and cry. It was extraordinary. Uh, Two of the directors that he mentions are Chen Cage, who... Has done some things himself. He's got Palme d'Or from uh, Cannes as well. And the other one is a guy by the name of, where did I put it? Uh, Zhang Yimou. And, uh, you know, you scroll through these and go, hey, what do I know this guy from? He was the director of the movie Hero, which is one of the best movies I've seen that I cannot find anymore. It's not on, like, any streaming service. Really? And I just don't go to the library. Because, you know, you can't just go to the library anymore. But You can go to the library yeah. now. Hero is a very interesting film that very sadly does not win any awards. Hmm. So it's not going to be talked about in here. But the fact that I randomly get to see that one, that's nice. Yeah. This was a... This is a movie that you should watch. This is a movie you should watch. You give a heck about the main character, even when he's being kind of a jerk. And it's also history that we weren't taught in school. No, this is, to harken back to the previous podcast, this is very similar to the Korean War movie in that it's not history we know about, but they do a very good job of getting the history across so it doesn't feel like you're in history class. Ah. And it's fairly accurate. I did look up a few things as we were going just to see if they were accurate, like... The Scottish tutor 
buying him a bike and spectacles. That yeah. was true. He yeah. had to fight for spectacles, and he did so. Wow. Uh, other than that, like we could just start talking about things like costumes. You want to talk about costumes? Ugh. Where do I even start talking about mm-hmm. costumes? I know where we can start with costumes. Do you want to hear well, just some sheer costumes? Volume. Do you want to hear some costume yeah, facts before volume. we get into costumes? Okay, nerd out. Okay. Go. So the costumes were made by a British designer named James Atchison. Atchison. A-C-H-E-S-O-N. It doesn't have a pronunciation guide. Okay. He has three Academy Awards. It's for this movie, Dangerous Liaisons, and Restoration. He got a BAFTA for this movie, too. Okay. He has a Career Achievement Award from the Costume Designers Guild, and he is one of only th- one of the first three costume designers to ever have been awarded the Rodeo Drive Walk of Style. Wow. Huh. Where they award people who do good things with fashion. It yeah. was in 2006, and he was awarded along with Milena Cannonero, who I believe we've talked about, and Edith Head, <laughs> who we've also talked about. Wow. That's pretty big. So, you know, he's actually quite good at design. And mm-hmm. it wasn't just that he was working with a lot of volume and therefore he got the award. Mm-hmm. He's done, he actually, he also he's, did good work. Yeah, and he's done costumes for for fairly well-known films. And none of it was... Like, and quite a few uh, superhero movies. Oh. Of all things. So there was some froofy-fru stuff when he's surrounded by... You know, tradition and imperial stuff. But the but the interesting thing about this film, because it goes back and forth in time, mm-hmm. then and it was also marching ahead in time, and mm-hmm. so there were you know iconic moments of you know uh, you know the nineteen twenties, the nineteen thirties, the nineteen forties, the nineteen fifties, and then there's you know yeah. Communist uh, internment camp, and then there's internment camp. Then there's, um, I mean, it. So there was this variety of costuming, you know, not just military things, but um, also fashion things, and that was interesting. Yeah. And seeing as this movie came out a decade before Star Wars Episode One, mm-hmm. and is uh, in fact set. In the 1910s, we can say with certainty that we figured out where they got their costume ideas for that movie. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. there were some pretty obvious Naboo hairstyles and costumes going on here. Yeah. But that's a different movie. (laughs) Uh, What else are we actually talking about? Quick, what are our actual categories this time? Uh, Editing is, is what it won for. Well, it's one of the things I want for. Right. But then we were looking at... Uh, so, film um, editing. Let's, yeah. say, let's actually discuss the film editing, because there were... They did not do, like, fade-in, fade-out transitions. They did not... They did not always have the time and the place on the screen. Only when it, they needed to. Yeah. If they were going somewhere where they, we already knew the place, or we could tell the time from context... They didn't. And that's something that is respectful of the audience's intelligence, which I appreciate. And they did some interesting changes um, using doors, I mm-hmm. thought. They actually changed time with with doors in more than one instance, where um, there was the, 
the scene where uh, the 1950s scene where the guy was rapping on the door and saying, open the door, open the yeah. door. And then it converted to when he was a child and they were opening the door, the big, huge red door. Yeah. The Forbidden City. And there were a couple of scenes, at least two or three, where they did door changes at time changes, which I thought was really kind of interesting concept. Mm -hmm. And it really, it kind of kept you in the, easily in the mode of the time is changing now. Yeah. The most interesting uh, cut for me was when he gets uh, brought to the new cell and the old guy starts screaming for the guard Mm -hmm. and then it transitions to the baby crying. Oh, yeah. And the first cry is in time with what he was yelling. And so it doesn't feel mm. like they've changed yet. Right. That was that one was a really good one. Now, what was it up against? What constitutes good film editing? Well, I, that's a lot more technical than I have figured out yet. I think I'd have to do more serious research into uh, film editing in which before I get yeah. very picky about what's actually good film editing because... Like, actually, I don't think RoboCop was particularly well edited. I think RoboCop was kind of all over the place. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a while, but I'm going off yeah. of my recollection here. I That was somehow nominated for editing, I guess, along with Fatal Attraction, another movie that I don't think I've seen. I don't remember. Empire of the Sun. So, the next thing is Best Original Score, which it also won for. So, this would be... Technically, only the parts that are newly written, not the very well-placed Emperor's Waltz, which Grandpa keenly pointed out. I It won over two uh, John Williams scores. I thought that was pretty interesting. Me. I don't like John Williams. So. Yeah, well, he, <laughs> he, was, he yeah. was pretty popular yeah. doing movies yeah. back, back in the On this the day, one, so. I mean, it definitely felt authentic. It felt authentic, but it also felt a little modern. It felt like it had the grandeur of history. Yeah. I uh, So there's three guys recognized as the uh, composers. There's David Byrne, who is a Scottish singer and songwriter, and guitarist of the American New Wave band Talking Heads. Really? There's Kong Su, who is Chinese, uh, born in Tianjin, which is one of the locations that the emperor ended up. Mm. Uh, he is not. He is a professor of film and media composition in in Stuttgart, and the third guy is Ryuchi Sakamoto, who's Japanese and a member of the Yellow Magic Orchestra and influential in the electronic music genres. Huh. So, based on that, I would say not surprising that they had a little bit of modern in there, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but. But it didn't feel overwhelmingly modern. No, this wasn't like uh, the Olympics one. The Olympics one. The 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 movie about the Olympics yeah. and it had sure, a, it's a fire. That one. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry, oh. couldn't come up with it. <laughs> that one was a movie set in a time period, but with a modern soundtrack. That's true. Well, with the Oriental stuff, it's hard yeah. to fill anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Next thing we're talking about: best director. Again, best director and best picture usually go hand in hand, and in this, they did again. If we're looking at the overall presentation of the movie, I would have to say it did a very good job. Right. Having whoever directed the overall direction of this movie did a good job. Uh, 
I do have an Academy Award fact, kind of, for the best picture part of it, because it has to do with uh, how well it did. Because it didn't. This movie barely made back twice its budget. Huh. It did not enter the weekend box office top 10 until week 12. And by the time it hit that, so in that week it got to number 7, it had tripled the number of theaters it was in. And this was the weekend before it got nominated for Best Picture. Following that week, it eventually made it to week 4, after the weekend after winning the Oscar. Mm -hmm. 22nd week in theaters. Yeah. Well, I think it has to do with the fact that we don't know this history. Yeah. And it's and it's also an art film. Would you it's like not to... an action film. It's yeah. not a, you know, a heartwarming story mm-hmm. film. The Academy Award fact is if not for the late push to get it to number 4, it would have joined the other 3 movies to win best picture and never hit the top 5. Hmm. One of which we dodged, Amadeus. Uh. Mm. Amadeus was never a top five movie I while it was know. in I've, theaters. I enjoy that film. Yeah. yeah, the other two are The English Patient and The Hurt Locker. The mm-hmm. Hurt Locker is mad serious and definitely not yeah. for the average viewing audience. Right, that's more of an art film. No. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's, because it's mad I, serious. I mean, I that's been, what I mean. Yeah, no, that one is. Uh, I think it's serious in a different way than an art film. I think that one's definitely more of a real life is. Stranger than fiction mm-hmm. movie, and it hits too hard for some people. Uh, uh. Uh, however, yeah, no, good direction on this one. Last one, sound recording. How do we feel about their ability to capture sound and present it on screen? Clyde? Scared the hell out of me several times, I know that. Mm-hmm. Well, right, but, and there's a, such a variety of sound, I mean, just in the... Yeah. Uh, the music. Mm. That well, was good because it won for that too. I yeah. <laughs> uh, beating out Empire of the Sun again, Witches of Eastwick, which was up there with John Williams, RoboCop, and Lethal Weapon. Oh golly, bang bang! <laughs> so you know the gun movies. Yeah, right, right. But this one was a long movie. You need to budget your time accordingly. Correct. It's not long enough to have an intermission. We've watched those, mm. and. It's really well presented. There's not much more you can say about it. You can nitpick here and there. But sure. But I don't know what you would have cut out to make it... There, I mean, there, were, there were some scenes in there that you maybe could have trimmed down a little bit. Like, you know, Teenager Hanky Panky. That went on for just a little too long. Yeah. But, I mean, you're saving minutes. Mm-hmm. It would be well, down to two and a half hours, maybe. I felt the same way, Dan, but I thoroughly enjoyed this one for the, the uh, things that it filled in in my brain that I had never heard anything about. And when I did hear about them, it was always inadequate. This, Those shots in that uh, Forbidden City, I'm telling you, I, I appreciated that. Mm-hmm. And they did a really good job of bookending the movie. Really good they job. They did. They do not. They do not do that often in films that well. Not often enough. Not often enough, and that is my writing jam: is mm-hmm. making sure the ending and the beginning are connected so that it feels like it's done. It's done. It's wrapped up. And this was. I mean, it wasn't necessarily on the nose. Like they didn't have a flashback of him seeing his young self. Mm-hmm. No, no, but no. they basically did. Mm-hmm. Well, and they brought it all the way up to today with a current mob of people 
touring inside. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With a very annoying megaphone, so you know it's time to move. Mm-hmm. Right, right. They don't have those anymore. Now they have self-guided tours. There would be people with their earphones in. Mm-hmm. That's less interesting cinema, though. All right. Well, and when I was there, I was a, a guest of the youth government and had to wear a youth government name tag the whole time I was in China. Mm. All right. Nothing wrong with that, is it? Well, no, except we then we were... People treated us differently because they knew that we were... You're going to go back home and tell people no, about what these no, are? No, no, no. I mean, the, the regular everyday people in China treated us differently because we were sponsored by the government. So it was uh, it was hard to get a feel for what was everyday life. Mm-hmm. All right. Closing thoughts? Is this it? Anyway, with white skin, was it? Well, I, and I have light-colored eyes, so that, that was a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> But is that it? We want to thank the Academy for doing its job and thereby pointing us in the direction of quality filmmaking. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Good night.